And now for something completely different. Ah! Forget everything you've been told by others before. Get ready for the real deal. The full story. Real talk about money, markets, life. Now, it's The Real Investment Show with Lance Roberts. Presented by RIA Advisors. And good morning and welcome to the hump day edition of The Real Investment Show. Lots of stuff to get into this morning. Of course, all eyes on Florida this morning as Hurricane Adalia now, Category 3 hurricane set to make landfall any moment. CNN, Fox News, everybody has their commentator out with a microphone and, of course, a rain jacket standing in the storm. Uh, of course, this is always, you know, you, this this start. When did this start? This what was had to be back during the '70s, right? Dan Rather, Hurricane Carla. That's what I was thinking, right? It had to be back. That was yeah. in the '60s, right? It's, so I was, it's the Rather effect. It's the Rather effect. Yeah, he was out there, wind blowing and stuff flying by him, and he set the standard. And ever since then, every time there's a hurricane, gotta have a news anchor out yeah. there. So, yeah, set a trend. Um, Anyway, did, you were, so yeah, when I was growing up with Hurricane Carla, that was the first of four, five now. Seems that, like, yeah. Yeah, because we've had, we've had, we had Carla, Ike, um, of course, and then... Um, Harvey. Uh, Harvey, Anita. Mm-hmm. There was one more in there, there somewhere. There was Alicia back Alicia, in the sorry, uh, not 80s. Anita, Alicia. Yeah. Yeah, because it, it flooded, my, uh, my house got flooded so many times from hurricanes growing oh, up. Oh, yeah, my, down Lake Jackson? Yeah, yeah. So my dad actually took all the carpet out, and he actually tiled the whole house. We just mopped the house out after yeah. a hurricane. Yeah. So it just, it just became a standard of living after yep. that. So it's just the way it is. Yeah. Um, anyway, so uh, everybody's kind of watching Florida this morning. We'll see what happens, of course. Hurricane's never a good thing. But, uh, again, you know, this is kind of just part and parcel of, you know, kind of the broader economic sense of things. Again, you know, we, we focus on these short-term disasters, which are bad, but that is going to create some economic activity short-term. So, again, while everybody kind of keeps expecting this recession, it's events like this that lead to these short-term bumps in economic activity that will, you know, again, this will be several billion dollars of damage that will have to get rebuilt and it'll create a short-term bump in activity. And, we, and we've seen this after every kind of uh, uh, cycle that we've been through. And again, we've kind of go back and we've been writing about this for years. Every time there's some of these events, we see a short-term uptick in economic activity. So, you know, this is just part of that whole federal spending thing that's been going on. And again, more money will have to be spent for this, more debt. Debt has increased over the last two years by over $5 trillion. And again, that's just a, you know, part of the spending program that we've been on. And this goes to the very heart of the fact of why this economy seems so resilient to a recession. Everybody keeps expecting a recession last year. Didn't occur. Now, of course, nobody expects a recession. And economic data has been better than expected. Now, that's the key point, that, though, to talk about this morning. Better than expected. Right. Economists were so negative on economic activity last year that they had lowered their estimates to a large degree and it made it very easy for economic data to come in and beat those estimates. So everybody was like economic surprises. Things are better than we thought they were. Well, of course, when that happens enough, what do economists do? Naturally, they begin to upgrade their estimates thinking, hey, Everything is now better. Everything is going to be better. We're, we're heading, you know, we had a soft landing. Everything's going to start to recover. Everybody starts ratcheting up estimates. And then something like yesterday happens, which is something that we may see a bit more of going forward because economists and analysts, analysts have gotten so optimistic about things that we see data now starting to disappoint 
expectations. And that's what happened yesterday. Consumer sentiment, much weaker than expectations yesterday. The Schiller, uh, case, uh, the Schiller case home price index, weaker than expected. Um, the JOLTS survey, of course, that's a job opening and labor turnover survey, come at, came out much weaker than expected yesterday. Quits rates are falling. We're starting to see other impacts across the labor market. That led to a fairly sharp rally in the markets. Now, that doesn't make any sense, right? Bad news is now good news again for the markets because that suggests that the Fed won't hike rates anymore. See, we're back to the same argument that we've been having really ever since last year, which has been the market continues to rally on anticipation or hopes that maybe the Fed has done hiking rates this time. Of course, that has been a repeated disappointment of, over the course of the last several months as the Fed keeps hiking rates. But every time that we get into this phase where markets sell off on expectation of higher rates, right? Something occurs and now all of a sudden the markets start rallying again on hopes. Well, maybe, maybe this time the Fed's done hiking rates for sure. So we had this correction that we talked about and yesterday here, um, you know, we, we specifically spoke about the ability for the markets rally here. Here's what you need to know before the bell this morning. Bad news is good news. That's what happened yesterday. Markets clearing that 50 and 20 day moving average. We talked about that yesterday morning saying, hey, look, if we can get above that resistance level, there's really nothing to stop the markets to get back to the previous highs that we set uh, in, in June and July. So again, pretty clear open selling here for markets to go higher. Importantly, though, we did trigger that MACD buy signal yesterday. And this is the one thing that we've been talking about here uh, for the last month or so is saying, hey, look, watch this sell signal. It's getting fairly deep through its cycle. It's not kind of normal oscillation. Well, yesterday we, we finished that and we did trigger that buy signal. That also was a function of this rising price in the market, clearing these moving averages. Again, market's not extremely overbought here. Expect a little bit of a pullback here uh, after yesterday. It was a big rally yesterday, up one and a half percent. So a bit of a pullback here wouldn't be surprising. And if we can pull back and test this 50-day moving average from after breaking it, turn that resistance back into support, that's actually a really good entry point here short term just to add a little bit of exposure. We, we bought a little bit of stuff uh, uh, early yesterday morning. Uh, that turned out well. But again, we've still got some more work to do here. So again, we've been kind of using this whole consolidation correction process to increase some equity exposure in portfolios. Uh, kind of keep on a watch on that very closely here. Um, importantly, though, this is a market that is still very bifurcated. The rally yesterday, pretty much all the mega cap stocks were back to that kind of, you know, seven stocks driving the whole market. But an interesting, you know, kind of facet behind all of this is that when you take a look at interest coverage ratios of companies, the mega cap companies have the very highest level of interest coverage. Not surprisingly, companies like Apple just have a ton of cash on their books. But this is why we continue to see portfolio managers hiding in those stocks. They are the least risk of potential bankruptcies because bankruptcies were up 71% last month on a year-over-year -year basis. Big jump. If you get into the, the small kind of mid-cap space, uh, down into the S&P 600, the S&P 400, uh, get down into some of the micro-cap stocks, we're starting to see some real problems there of higher rates weighing on the financials of, the, of those books. Again, we're seeing those bankruptcies actually ticking up here. And, and again, that's something to certainly pay attention to. This is not a market that is equally built across 
all sectors. And you know, while a lot of people are kind of hoping for this resurgence of small and mid-cap names, that really is where most of the risk is within the markets. And this is why portfolio managers as a function are still hiding in those top seven stocks. They, they're highly liquid, easy in and easy out to get out of. And they have the least risk of bankruptcy right now uh, of compared to all the other stocks in the index. And particularly when you get down into those smaller mid cap names where interest coverage is problematic and the impact of higher rates and refinancing for those businesses are becoming much more problematic, particularly as the Federal Reserve and banks continue to tighten lending standards and tighten and, and, you know, through higher interest rates and, and really banks just saying, hey, I don't want to take the risk of loaning money. Uh, so again, something to really pay attention to within your portfolio. Make sure you're chasing the stocks that are fundamentally sound and have the least risk of bankruptcy, at least at this point. Uh, as we go further into the economic cycle. That's what you need to know before the bell this morning. When we come back, we'll pick up with Danny Ratliff. Lots of stuff to get into this morning. Don't go away. More of The Real Investment Show coming right up. Get daily investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com. So welcome back to the show this morning. I'm your host, Lance Roberts. Danny Ratliff joining me while I play uh, computer technician here as my computer has now frozen for just a second. So I'm trying to get my uh, stuff back engaged here at the moment. Uh, interesting survey out this morning, Danny. I thought that you would, since you have younger children that you're trying to raise right now, I've, I've pretty much already screwed all mine up. So um, trying is a very good word. Yeah, you know, there's there's uh, you know, kind of no hope for my four kids at this point. But interesting survey out this morning that nearly a quarter of young kids today that then these were these were intermediate to high school kids they they went and asked them and said what do you want to be when you grow up right so when Danny and I when I was growing up we all wanted to be you know policemen or firefighters or cowboys or Indians one of the four um <laughs> I don't know what so Danny when you were growing up what do you want to be when you grew up it wasn't a financial advisor no, no, no but nobody grows up going, Mom, I want to be a financial planner when I grow up. <laughs> no, I always thought I, I wanted to be an attorney. My grandfather was an attorney. And so um, that's what I always thought. I wanted to be like him. Yeah. 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 And I, I think that's most people. You know, we have a, a, a person that we identify in life and that's who we want to be. And again, so and he was a good type of attorney, too. So that's ah. debatable. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, we grow up and say, you know, we either have a parent or grandparent or, or somebody that we know very well. They're a doctor, a lawyer, accountant, whatever it is. And so we want to follow in their footsteps. So it's not surprising that with all the kids kind of glued to social media today that nearly one fourth of all the children survey wanted to be an influencer when they grew up. Oh, good Lord. That's their that's their. Yeah, that's, that's their terrible. Goal. And this is why you need to limit the interaction that your kids have on social media. Well, but, you know, but this isn't, you know, this isn't surprising, right? I mean, when my son was growing up, right, he wanted to be a football player. He wanted to be in the NFL, mm -hmm. right? What, what are the odds of being a football player in the NFL? Do you have any idea on a percentage basis? Oh, yeah. It's like .0001. Yeah, it's very small, right? Yeah. And so, you know, the, the, the odds of being a successful influencer 
are less than one percent. Yeah. So, you know, and again, it's just it's just that. But again, you know, we all want to do this. But again, this is where, as parents, this is where we have to step in and say, you know, um, that's that's okay, right? You know, it's okay if you want to try to be an influencer. I'm fine with that. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Just make sure you have a secondary backup. So let's get a let's get a college degree in something that's actually gonna you know provide you a backup just in case the influencing thing doesn't work out for you. Well, well first of all, at their age, what are they going to influence? Every but what you, but what, have you, you what, what type of knowledge? Media? No, I know, I know, but like, <laughs> what type of real knowledge do you actually bring to the table? Right. So. Well, somebody needs to have a conversation. Can, can like, we talk about great, some of the, can we this, talk about some of the people yes. that are influencing on social no, no, media? No, no, <laughs> no doubt for sure. But at the same token, like somebody should sit down and like, let's have a real life talk about what the world is like and what these people are actually doing. You know, 99% of them are probably renting the Lamborghini for an hour or the airplane or all of these things. Yeah. And if they are so stinking successful with what they're doing, why are they telling you? Well, that you see, you stole my thunder. That was the whole point, right? Uh, even even Mark Cuban was out the other day on social media, and he he made this statement. He said, he said, listen, let me tell you a little bit about how capitalism works. He says, if somebody has found a secret ingredient to making money, they're not going to share it with you, right? They're going to keep it for themselves. So all these people, and, and and particularly, he was addressing all the, the commentary that's on social media about how to get rich quick, you know, how to, you know, if, you know, go, go be a, well, they're getting rich you know. quick off of you following them. <laughs> well, that's, that's the point, right? So yeah. that's the influencer, um, which is, Hey, you know, go, go, you know, go do digital marketing or whatever it is. And you can make a thousand dollars a day doing, you know, this, that, or the other thing on social media. It sounds great, but if they actually had the secret to this, why would they share it with you? Right? So this is, and this is the challenge that, you know, I have with my kids right now, you know, talking to them because, again, they see all this stuff and, and I get I get texts from my kids going, hey, you know, is this real? Right. You know, whatever this is, you know, the, the, the latest little fat on the internet. I'm like, no, it's not real. <laughs> you know, don't do that. Yeah. Um, but it's a challenge. And, and for a parent trying to raise kids today because of social media, you know, it looks so easy. You know, I just I just make some videos and I really don't understand this as well. This is one other thing. Maybe you can explain this to me, Danny. Probably not. I'll but, try. Okay, so the, there's a lot of complaints about, you know, from the kind of the millennial and, and Gen Z group now that, you know, that they don't have enough money, things are too expensive. And, and then I watch them, and they send money to these people for doing these live streams and stuff. I'm like, what are you doing with your money? <laughs> You know, you're complaining you don't have enough money, you can't afford a house and do these things, but now you're sending money to people because they're streaming on the internet. I, I don't get it. I, I don't get it either. I mean, that, that, yeah, that baffles me. As hard as it is to come across a dollar, I think it's so, it's interesting about how, in, you know, people will just give it away for, was it, I mean, content, entertainment? Yeah. I'd probably say a lot of it's more entertainment than actual content. Is it the P.T. Barnum effect? No, I don't think it's the P.T. Barnum effect. I think it's just honestly the way that a whole generation has been raised. is like, oh, I like this content creator. So, again, you go on to TikTok or you go on to YouTube or whatever. You can you can send them likes or whatever, but then you can, you know, you can subscribe to their channel, pay, pay a fee to subscribe to their channel. It makes them, okay, back up. How do you become an influencer in the top 1% so that you can 
make a standard of living by streaming video games or whatever it is. You need people to subscribe to you and to yeah. send you money. So you're sending money to somebody to sit around and play a video game while you watch them play a video game, which I haven't quite figured that one out yet. Um, but people do this and then they complain about not having enough money. And, mm. you know, I'm just, you know, we kind of, and this is kind of the topic of the show today, which is always financial planning and, and doing, yeah. doing smarter things with your money. I just, I don't get, again, I'm old, right? So let's just start there. I'm almost 60. So, you know, paying people to play video games on the internet, I don't get that. But again, it's a different generation. So, well, you know, I, I'll give you an example. Mike, my wife was driving down the road one day, big lemonade pop-up stand, mm -hmm. and a line all the way around the building, through the parking lot, people waiting. And it's a YouTube influencer. And my kids knew who this person was. They don't have unfettered access to YouTube, to any social media. I mean, really to, to much, to be honest with you. But, um, and so what was happening is, this guy was giving away free lemonade, but he'd also give away, here's an Xbox, here is a TV, here's all these things. So people were, were lining up for this, or here's cash. And so you got to think how much money some of these people are making. Now, this guy evidently was like a humongous YouTube sensation. Right. But I'm sure he got there because he just started giving away stuff. It's kind of interesting when you think about it. I mean, like supported probably by somebody else. Like did private equity sure. come in and scoop this dude up? <laughs> like what happened here? Right. How did he start getting all these people? Because this is, if you look back at it, because I was kind of interested. I was like, all right, what's this guy all about? He just gives stuff away. Yeah. Well, look, there's, there's guys like Mr. Beast, which does that. He gives stuff away. I think that's exactly away. who it was. Oh, it was Mr. Beast? Yeah. yeah he, he lives in he, Houston. Okay. Yeah. He's, he's huge, I'm think, right? I think that's him. Um, and, and he does, he does these big giveaways and does all these kind of crazy things. And, but he started out small. He's got a whole team now that, that generates these ideas, promotes wow. them, market them. And he's got a huge following. Right. And, and so he does, he does very, very well. He makes millions of year, million dollars a year doing this, uh, type of stuff. But you know, there's other guys like, uh, there's a video streamer. Who are working PewDiePie. too hard, Lance? What right. No, it, it is. But there's a video game streamer named PewDiePie who was number one ranked on YouTube for a long time made like $5 million a year streaming video games. Wow. So, again, but it's a very small percentage. <laughs> this, is, this is the point. Yeah. So you've got 25% of kids growing up now that this is their goal in life is to be an influencer. But again, look, they're young. They'll figure this stuff out. I'm not, I'm not saying that this isn't going to happen, but you know, it's just an, a very interesting generational difference where when, we, you know, when Gen X was growing up or baby boomers were growing up, we were wanting to be doctors or lawyers or like Danny said, you know, people that we idolized. Um, and now it's, you know, video streamers. Just, just, it's just an interesting change in the generational makeup. Well, if it makes I you feel any better, my, my middle one still wants to be, he wants to be a major league baseball player. I'm like, okay, buddy, better yeah. get out there and work. <laughs> uh, you know, I mean, but it, but that's, I, I still think it's there for a lot yeah. of kids. Sure. Now, mine are probably too young to really understand that whole sensation and get behind it. But, you know, I'm going to try to keep it that way for as long as I can. Yeah. The beauty of innocence. Yeah. It's all good. Absolutely. Um, okay, so we got some topics to get into today, Danny. Well, you know, that's kind of interesting. You just mentioned how people were giving money away yeah. for, you know, just to like something. And so they did a study, actually, that um, what would you do if somebody gave you $10,000? And I think this is really interesting, but now they followed what happened. And so they actually came out there's a, and they went through Ted talk is how this group did it. So they gave 200 people around the world, 
10,000 bucks. But they, they wanted to see like what would people do if they had to tell everybody what they did with the funds versus if they kept it to themselves mm-hmm. and didn't tell everyone. <laughs> and so the, the thought behind it was initially that if you told everybody, you would actually be more inclined to do actually good with it. The rule was you're supposed to spend it within like three months. Okay. But you're supposed to give it and help people. Okay. So but you had to tell everybody either on Twitter how you spent the money or you couldn't tell anybody at all. So out of 200 people, what do you think? Do you think which group gave more? Uh, the group that had to tell everybody on Twitter. You know, that's what I thought too. But it was actually, I was a little bit surprised that that was not the case. They said everybody actually has more goodwill than we anticipate. Interesting. That they gave away quite a bit, bit more money than, than what everybody thought. So um, now another thing is, is that people in non-developed countries consistently gave away about 28% of their money. Interesting. So, kind of interesting. Now, a lot of it was to help family, friends, um, things they were passionate about. But I would have thought, I would have bet money, that it would have been the person on Twitter saying, look what I did today, yep. that would have been the one that gave gave their money away. I, I, I would have thought that too. Yeah. Yep. You know, I, I just, I, I gave... I gave my I gave a homeless person lunch yesterday. Yeah, she lives with me, but it's my wife. But I get, I did buy her lunch oh yesterday. <laughs> oh, good lord! You're paying just, for that one later. Yeah, no, probably. <laughs> I'll be right back after the break. Don't go away. investment advice blog it's required reading for the informed investor catch it today at realinvestmentadvice.com so uh next couple of days we've got some uh economic data coming out that will probably move the markets um, you know, yesterday, of course, you know, we saw consumer sentiment coming in uh, much weaker than expected. Um, we also saw the Case Shiller Home Price Index fall a little bit more than expected, and the Joel Survey much weaker than expected. Uh, today, we've got retail inventories month over month, second quarter GDP. Now, this is the second estimate of the second quarter's GDP. So remember, we have three. You know, you have the initial estimate and the two revisions, um, and then we'll have another revision a year from now and another revision three years from now. So uh, we'll get the second uh, estimate today. We also have second quarter personal consumption. Uh, The second estimate of that, that's currently expected to be 1.8%, pending home sales, of course. Um, And then uh, in uh, tomorrow, we've got personal incomes. So again, some some pretty big data over the next couple of days that that could well move markets in one direction or the other. And as we were talking about earlier this morning, Bad news is good news again because, again, if we have bad news, that means that the Fed won't hike rates anymore, which is good for stocks because now stocks are hoping that the Fed will start cutting rates. And if the economic data is bad enough, then they'll start cutting rates, which means that stocks will go. It's very confusing. (laughs) Less the good news is bad news. But, I mean, typically when you see this type of environment, if they're cutting rates because we don't have a soft landing. Right. Well, that's the whole point. That's why it's all very confusing, right? The the hope is is the Fed's going to cut rates, but the Fed's cutting rates, that means the economy's slowing down, which means earnings are falling, which means that the valuations are too high, which means stock stock prices prices have to come down. So again, it's all very confusing. You know, this you know, the markets are rallying in anticipation of the Fed starting to have to cut rates. 
but really that's not what you want them to do. It, it's like I said, it's it's a bit baffling how markets work, but it's how markets work right now. Yeah, fun so, stuff. Yeah, it's all good stuff. So more more sentiment trade, short term versus long term trade. Well, it's it's been a sentiment trade for the last five years. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> so you know, true. ever since twenty twenty, it's been a sentiment trade. Um, so anyway, um, you know, now that we've you know kind of you know kind of gotten some of this kind of you know economic data you know out there, and again, you know, this is the interesting thing as we said earlier is that everybody got so excited about stronger economic data. Now the estimates are too high. So we're going to start to have disappointment now. It's like, oh, well, the numbers are coming in weaker than expected. We'll hear a lot of this. And that's just because everybody got so excited about the data being stronger than expected previously. Everybody ratcheted up their numbers. And so now that everybody's ratcheted up their numbers, you now have the potential for misses. Um, but again, this is just you know something we'll have to navigate. Markets, are again, as we talked about earlier, they're in good shape. Nice rally yesterday above resistance. Kind of sets the markets to rally back to, to this year's highs. Um, you know, but again, you know, the risk of an economic downturn, economic recession next year, certainly very much in the cards. And we've got to pay attention to that. Um, interesting note real quick, and then I'm going to turn it over to you, Danny. Um, one of the, the, the head scratchers this year has been the fact that, you know, seven stocks have pretty much driven the entire market. If you X out the top seven stocks of the markets, you virtually have no gains in the markets this year. And one of the reasons for that, and this is going to be in this weekend's newsletter, so if you're, if you're subscribed at the website, I'll have a discussion on this in, this, in, in the newsletter on Saturday, that interest coverage is extremely strong in those very large 10 mega cap companies. It makes complete sense, right? They you know, have a boatload of cash sitting on their books, Berkshire Hathaway, Apple, um, Microsoft, they just have a, a a war chest of cash sitting there. So there's no risk of bankruptcy in those companies. But bankruptcies have risen 71% year over year in those small to mid-cap companies. And that's where interest service coverage is the weakest. And those are also the companies that have the biggest risk of refinancing of debt at these higher rates in the next year or so. So again, if there's, if there's a risk that you're going to have a downturn in the economic data, and a risk of a bankruptcy, I don't want to invest there, right? So portfolio managers are chasing these big mega cap companies because they're completely safe, they're super liquid, I can get in and out of them very quickly. So I can go store a couple of billion dollars there if I have to in a Microsoft and it's no big deal, right? If I'm in a smaller mid cap company and something goes wrong, I may not be able to get out because everybody else is trying to get out at the same time. So it's just one of those things that's interesting and, and worth paying attention to is that you know the, the economic risk is not gone. And it may, it may feel like at times that nobody cares about the economic data, but the economic data will matter. It's just going to take longer for that lag effect to catch up because of all the money you know, in the system, as we've talked about before. Okay. So, Danny, with that said. Oh, I just went to sleep. Okay. Well, I, I know. It's my turn to oh, take a nap because you, you've got financial planning stuff to talk about. So, no, so um, you know, question that we're starting to get. So a lot of talk around the, the 10 drugs subject to Medicare price negotiations. Mm -hmm. And so... What is the overall impact that you see with healthcare companies, pharmaceuticals? Clearly, um, you know, do you do you have any thoughts on that? Well, I mean, you know, it's it's interesting because, you know, when you talk about these these and, and these drugs like Aliquis and Ibril, um, and Tresto, you can't even pronounce half the names of these companies. You know, these drugs. Um, you know, these are all drugs that are typically prescribed 
to our older population, mm -hmm. uh, right? And these are the drugs that are most subject to Medicare pricing, et cetera. And that's all this is, is this is a, a, you know, an attempt by the administration to try to negotiate drug prices for some of these more popular drugs used by the older population um, and used in, and basically Medicare having to pay for. Uh, so this is an attempt to try to negotiate that. I don't think it has a, a huge effect on these companies. We'll see. But, you know, again, this is and this is an attempt and whether or not it's successful is an entirely different story. Well, they actually put this in the Inflation Reduction Act. Yeah. And so what I think the biggest, you know, maybe miss it's, it's a little bit misleading in some ways because mm -hmm. it's not going to be a direct impact to us, the consumer. Unfortunately, right. right? They're negotiating the price to save themselves money. So out of these 10 drugs, they pay $50.5 billion last year on them. And so this is an enormous amount. Mm -hmm. Now, one of the, the kickers here is that most of these drugs are coming out of their patent period. Right. So the prices are going to come down anyways when there's more competition. Right, because they'll make generic forms of this. Correct. So it's kind of like, okay, look, look what we're doing to help. But really what it's doing is, so what they anticipate with all the things that are going on right now is that it's going to actually reduce the cost that they spend for a while. But they're not changing our out-of-pocket. Right. Not yet. Now, in 2026, they're talking about reducing the out-of-pocket to $2,000 for Medicare Part D, which that'd be great. But if we could get the cost down in general, I think that'd be much better. Because here in the States, we spend much more money than anywhere else in the world on, yeah. on any types of drugs. No, it, it's, well, and again... You know, people say this all the time, and, and there's there's truth to that statement, right? I'm not saying there's not truth to that statement. We do pay more for drugs than other people in the world, but it's because we're paying for all the R&D because they're developed Correct. here, right? Yeah. And then they get shipped overseas and, and they get sold. But, you know, again, that's just kind of the, the function of this. And again, you, you've got to really read that Inflation Reduction Act. There's you, you should read it. There's some very interesting stuff buried in there. Um, in, in that whole Inflation Reduction Act, an interesting one is there is a there is a clause in there for a kill switch in electric vehicles. Of course, you know, the whole Inflation Reduction Act is a big push to get everybody to drive electric in one, vehicles. Yeah. And there's a clause in there to install a kill switch in electric vehicles. Why? So if you have a, a once you start to overload the grid, if we need to brake, basically the kill switch is, is flipped and you can't drive your car to work. Mm -hmm. But it saves electricity. So you should read it. It's, it's yeah. There's some really interesting stuff buried in it. Michelle's like, when you get rid of that old truck, Never. Now, now, you know, it's looking a lot better. It doesn't have all those electronics. Yeah, and I, I am. If anybody out there has a 1971, 72 International, I'm very interested in buying it. So if you want to sell one, can't find and It's in decent condition. That would be in great condition. This is a decent condition. You're going to work on it in your spare time? Yeah. Hmm. <laughs> okay. I've got a 66 Mustang that I've had since 2007. Really? Right? Yeah, it's sitting yeah. in your garage? Yeah. yeah. I mean, it still runs. We, we drive it, but it, uh, it needs some love. There's just no time. Well, I'm going to retire. You, you, <laughs> That's because, even funnier. Because you said on the show Friday... That, you know, if you had a five-year window to plan for retirement, then that's my five-year window. Well, that's some people. I mean, <laughs> your window's much larger. Gosh. <laughs> Finances are a wreck. Come on, your spending habits? No way. You got four kids. I, that's true. I, I do have four kids. But anyway. It's not happening. But my, my goal is, though, I do want to rebuild a, 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 an older type international or an old pickup truck type yeah. that 
is not trackable and I can actually work on it when it, something breaks down. It's not all these electrical gadgets. Man, you open the hood of one of those. I mean, it is so different than like what we have today. It's <laughs> well, so much easier. Well, when I was growing up, you know, we used to build cars all the time, right? And and me and my buddies in high school, we built race cars all the time. But it was super simple, right? Yeah. It was just pistons, spark plugs, and carburetor, right? Now it's all these electronics. So I just want to get back to basics. Yeah, you can't even work on them in your garage no, now. You, no. you got to take them in. Exactly. Let me hook you up to our our machine here. <laughs> <laughs> but but so getting back to the Medicare yeah. part, I don't know that this is going to be like we're getting all these headline news about it. I'm not sure it's going to have the impact that most people think. Mm-hmm. Right? I mean, oh, it's going to be so bad for the pharmaceutical companies. Well, maybe for a moment, but if most of these drugs are coming off patent, they're going into competition anyways. And those prices should be reduced. Yeah. But so how can we get away with, you know, so I, I get what you're saying. We spend all the money on R&D, but yet we're shipping this out globally. Why are we the ones that have to foot the bill? Just the way it works. Almost doesn't mean it's right. <laughs> no, but again, this is this has been the whole problem with, look, you know, do we do we have a very high cost of health care in the United States? Absolutely. Absolutely. No doubt about it. Do we have the best health care in, in the United States? Absolutely. No doubt about it. I've lived in other countries. Don't argue with me. Um, <laughs> the point is, though, is that it's the insurance problem. Yeah. And if you want to fix the healthcare problem, you've got to fix the healthcare insurance. And it's not the insurance, right? It's responsibility of individuals and insurance. Again, you want a $25 copay. If you want all these other things, it's going to cost you more in insurance. Somebody's got to pay. Somebody's got to foot the bill, right? Yeah. At the end of the day, somebody's got to pay the bill. Somebody's got to pay the money. But medical billing problems, you know, there's there's about four big areas, tort reform, et cetera, would fix a lot of the health care costs in this country, but nobody's willing to fix those problems. Be right back after the break. Get daily investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the Internet at realinvestmentadvice.com. You know, just one last comment about healthcare costs, and uh, just think about this over the break. What happened with uh, student loan debt and college costs after the government got involved? Through the roof. Through the roof. What happened with healthcare costs once government got involved? Through the roof. There you go. So, if you want to get, if you want better healthcare costs and better healthcare coverage, get government out of the middle of it. <laughs> so. Well, it doesn't seem like the government's getting any smaller. Yeah. It's about control, man. You can do this. Well, which is why these guys won't get elected. They want smaller government. That's right. Everybody's, bad for business. It's their bad, business. It's very bad for business. Uh, all right. So um, what else we got on our agenda this morning? So, you know, one thing that I've had a lot of conversations about here lately, and, and this is something that we talk about really daily with, with clients, is estate planning. And this is so often overlooked. In fact, uh, Richard and I just did a uh, piece with Adam Taggart here last week about just end of life planning, as Richard liked to call it, progression planning. And I think that, you know, I get it. It's kind of like life insurance. Nobody wants to address their mortality. But I think there's a couple of points that really need to be taken into consideration. And so, and some just misconceptions all in all. And so came across a couple of articles and just kind of thinking about, you know, things that we talk about on a daily basis. And, you know, one of them is, you know, one, first of all, not enough people address this. We get calls all the time and, and you know, we talk to, to many different people and say, hey, have you done your estate plan? Have you, do you have a will? Do you have a power of attorney? No. Well, that's something you need to address and probably rather quickly. Um, you know, when we start to kind of, we have a checklist that we're going through 
And I think that this is something that, you know, it's just too often overlooked or just not done. And so one, though, misconception is, though, is that somebody says, well, I have a will. Well, great. Mm -hmm. When's the last time it was updated? 2007. Yeah. What's changed <laughs> since then, right? Are kids older? Are, uh, or have assets changed? You know, I mean, these are things that, that need to be done. And also, I think a lot of people think that a will is going to avoid probate. And that's typically not the case. I mean, what's probate mm -hmm. for, right? So people can contest the will. Yep. It's to name the executor. Say, okay, yep, look through documents. Everything looks good. Um, and it's to give time there for somebody to really contest it. Right. And that's why I have a clause in my trust that says if you contest the will, you're out. Well, but now yeah, we're talking nothing. about but now we're talking about a trust, right? So there's a couple of ways that you can you can supersede or circumvent the will in the sense of you know, having a trust, having assets that have beneficiaries, so like your IRAs, 401ks, mm -hmm. banking accounts, and, and ideally for those types of accounts, that's what you want, because you know somebody all they need to do is walk into the bank, show a death certificate, you know funds are moved, right? I think this is I think this is a real key point right here. And this is a good point to cover this. Um, when you're opening a joint joint account, there's two types of joint accounts you can open. Yep. And it's important to understand the difference. Can you explain that? Yeah. So you have joint with rights of survivorship, which is probably the more common. You see this commonly used with spouses where, um, you know, you'll say, hey, if I pass, my wife, she'll get the rest of uh, she'll get all the funds. Right. Um, and then they have tenants in common. Or tenants in common is a little different. And you see this used sometimes when you, you start to commingle households. Um, and you may say, listen, you know, we're going to keep our funds here. These are our joint funds. But if I go, I want my kids to get my half. You, re you retain the yeah. other half. And this can be problematic when they're set up like this without the other spouse knowing. Because many times, I mean, they're just set up. I've seen banks do this and like, oh, man, they click the wrong button. Right. Which can be detrimental. So you want to make sure you understand what type of joint account you have, because if you have tenants in common, then you can each have your own set of beneficiaries. Funds can be split. Right. And I, I guess and the, the point I wanted you to make was, is that in, in the planning process, right, mm -hmm. the rights of survivorship, it kind of supersedes the will because the right of survivorship says, if I die, everything goes to my wife, right? It's, yeah. it's rights of survivorship. So whoever survives the account gets that, regardless of what the will says. Tenants in common, though, follows the rules of the will if there's a will right yeah. so if the will says hey well but you can each 20, have your own beneficiaries within correct. that tenants in common right right yeah. and that's and that's my point so you know if you if you're you know it's important to understand the dynamics of how those two different accounts work particularly when you have joint funds in the household and this is why you know if you have separate property it's important to label it separate property because that will impact the estate as well there's a lot of things to and these are those little small things when that a lot of people don't think about when doing financial planning and estate planning, they can really screw up things when somebody passes away. Oh man, I mean, yeah. I mean, tremendously, and that's the problem is we see so much a, a burden on the heirs, and, and not only that, but a burden, but also a lot of a lot of infighting, right? right? I mean, you see that quite a bit, and it's unfortunate because you know any you're like, oh, this will never happen to my family. Huh. I mean, we see it happen all the time. Now you do see some very amicable um, situations. But you also see a lot of horror stories. I'd say there's probably more bad than there's good. Oh, yeah, yeah. And, and, uh, if you want, if you want to blow up a family really quick, have yeah. them fight over money. Well, I, I think the the one thing that's not done often enough is, and we talk about this just with in general with finances. You know, the finance 101 is not taught to our kids. Uh, we've got to do it. We're we're really, you know, the burden's on us to teach our kids how to manage money, and and what money means and the value of a dollar. But the one thing that many people don't talk about is they don't want to talk about just a, a plan in general, hmm. like. Hey, you know, like, you know, like my kids, you're going to get this, you're going to get this. Um, or 
Here's what happens if something happens to us, especially once you're older, right? Right now, I don't want to have the conversation like, hey, if dad's not here, you know, mm-hmm. here's where you're going type of situation. But, you know, I think another common mistake with that in mind is that many people delay an estate plan until they're much older. They say, oh, I don't need it. I'm not going to die. Right. Right. No, but, well, nobody wants to face mortality. You know, my, my biggest challenge in my household is getting my wife to sit down and and talk about the will or estate planning or anything that has to do with end of life. She does not want to face mortality and yeah. particularly my mortality. Right. So she would rather just kill me slowly with poison cupcakes. But, you know, it's she doesn't she just doesn't want to deal with it. It's just that is the hardest thing for her to do. No, and, and that's that's the most difficult thing for many people to do. But here's the unfortunate part, right? Especially so your kids are a little bit older now, but like mine, mm-hmm. I need to have a plan. I, mean, I have a plan, but anybody who's younger needs to have a plan as far as, okay, God forbid something happens. My mother died when I was 34, or she was mm-hmm. 34, excuse me, not me. Um, I was eight years old, right? Right. So if something happened to my father, there had to be a contingency plan. And that's the unfortunate part is that so many people just say, we're going to delay, we're going to delay, we're going to delay. And then it's never addressed, never thought of. And so there's a lot of things that you can do, though, that will help kind of start to kind of broach that conversation. You may just want to set in a, a meeting with an attorney and say, hey, we've got a meeting up here. Yeah, Come on in. Because yeah. they'll make you think about it. Yeah. Now, I'd prefer our clients to have that conversation already. And anybody that's listening, start thinking about these things in baby steps and just say, okay, what would happen? Yeah. And this, look, this what is, do you want? Right. Then this is another key point about life insurance as well. And I, I've had numerous clients that I've... They, you know, talk to them and say, look, you really need a life insurance policy to, you know, backstop your will and your financial plan and this type of stuff. And like, oh, yeah, yeah, I'll get around to it. You know, insurance, everybody hates it. Nobody likes buying life insurance, right? You're just paying for something you're never going to use until you kick the bucket. And what I've had happen more than once is, is that then they get diagnosed with cancer or something else. And now they're uninsurable. Can't get it, yeah. And you can't get it. Or if you can get it, it's so freaking expensive. It just doesn't even make sense anymore. So, you know, the, these are those things, though, that, you know, we can't we can't predict the future and we never know what's going to happen. And if you don't plan for it, you know, there's things that can happen that can completely wreck your financial future for your family. Oh, absolutely. So if, if you are younger, I mean, you know, there's there are there's a hierarchy of how you would do insurance, too. And so, you know, I think one do something. Well, one big problem, though, is that like you see these guys that like everybody needs a permanent policy. And I think that's right if you're actually going to save and put funds aside into some some policies like this. However, everybody needs a term policy first. Sure. Right. I mean, especially if you're starting off a young family, you need to go get a term policy to mitigate risk should something happen to if you. If you're single, you don't need insurance. Yeah. But no. you get married, as soon as you get married, you need insurance. If you have kids, you definitely need insurance. Well, as soon as you have responsibilities beyond your exactly. control, you need to be able to, to to do that, right? We're just mitigating risk. And you know, right. I understand most people don't want to pay for it. I get it, right? But we pay auto insurance in case something happens. The same thing here. Well, and we this buy is, it because the government forces yeah. it. Maybe we need the government to force people to buy life insurance. You know, I'm not I'm not a big fan of the government forcing people to do, do anything. <laughs> but but here in Houston, man, I'm glad most, well, I say most, probably some people have insurance. Exactly. Um, but... You know, so this is this is a problem is that, you know, you need to, to understand how insurance works, what type of insurance you should get. Now, if you have a, a very large estate um, and it doesn't matter your age, you need to have some type of permanent policy to mitigate estate taxes. Right. But most kids starting off young aren't going to have to worry about that. Even if you're a little bit older, have a family at home, you may not fall under those. You're, you're to fall under the estate tax exemptions. But 
things you need to be considering. And so, um, but just like estate planning, life insurance is too often just pushed off and brushed off and put to the side. You know, another big part of this is that, you know, um, long-term care costs within estate planning. Yeah. Right. So there's a five-year look back rule. And so we get a lot of calls from, from clients say, Hey, my parents, they don't have a ton of money, but they've got a little bit, they don't qualify for Medicaid and they're going to just blow through everything. So to qualify for Medicaid, you almost have to be destitute. And you have funds in a retirement account, primary residence, and about $2,000. I mean, you're not, you cannot have a lot of money. Now, you can put funds into a, an irrevocable trust or give these funds away, which we've seen people do. But you have that five-year look-back rule. And unfortunately, nobody thinks about that until you actually need some type of care. But even then, I don't think it's ever too late. So if you, get into, you or somebody you know get into one of those situations... Go see an elder law attorney. Um, they're going to be able to tell you exactly, you know, what you can and can't do. They're going to know the ins and outs and, and hopefully find a way that you don't just blow through everything. And I think that so many people just say, read something or see something online and they throw their hands up and say, oh, screw it. We can't do yeah. it. Right. And I think that's a problem. Yeah. Well, no. And, and, and long term care is is difficult to understand. But again, it's, you know, the, the, the thing, the hang up that we have. Right. And I think that most people have, and this is like buying insurance, is well, I don't want to pay, you know, I'm having to pay for something, you know, right now that mm-hmm. I'm never going to use, or at least I'm not going to use for 30 years. Yeah. And so we keep putting it off because we need money for all this other stuff, right? We need money to live and invest and do these type of things. And it's hard to get across the value of that insurance. And unfortunately, you realize the value of it when it's too late. Well, any of this, and it's the same thing with an estate plan, right? Your family will, they're going to thank you or they're going to look back and say, oh my gosh, this was such a terrible ordeal. And it's even worse because the emotional toll that it takes. So remember, anytime you're doing an estate plan, any type of planning, it's not a one and done. Keep it updated. Set a date on the calendar. We've got these fancy phones that'll remind you. Go update these things. There's no excuse. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Danny. Wraps up the show for today. Uh, be back tomorrow with Michael Leewoods, of course, and we'll get into a bit of, of what Powell said last Friday and you know what that potentially means. We'll get into that tomorrow. Uh, also, um, have a great day. You can get by the website, realinvestmentadvice.com. Get this weekend's newsletter and more. All at the website, realinvestmentadvice.com.